right now the world continues to watch the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. Based on the latest report, Vladimir Putin has not backed up yet. So in other words, he is gearing forward towards occupation in Ukraine. And meanwhile, the reactions from the international communities are rather diverse. As we are watching this tension, another part of the world somehow got looped into the conversation, which is Taiwan. As an international journalist, I used to travel between Taiwan and mainland China. It's so interesting that people in Taiwan, if I can use the phrase, is called rather anxious and watchful towards the tension between Ukraine and Russia. So that's why today it's so important in this episode, I want to talk to our special guest regarding the tension between Taiwan and mainland China and why Taiwan at this moment should be watchful regarding the conflict in another part of the world. Join our show today, it's Brian Huey, and he's one of the founding editors of New Bloom, and he's a freelance journalist as well as a translator. And New Bloom is an online magazine uncovering activism and youth politics in Taiwan and the Asia Pacific, and it was founded in Taiwan in 2014 in the wake of the Sunflower Movement. Brian, welcome to The Missing Piece. Thanks for having me. Thanks for the invite. It's a pleasure to be on. Absolutely, the pleasure is mine. Now, Brian, let's get started. As I mentioned in the intro, the whole world is paying attention regarding the conflict between Russia and Ukraine. I want to know, the first question is, how do people in Taiwan react to this conflict and why it is so concerning to the Taiwanese people? So it's quite interesting because there are a number of parallels that could be drawn between Taiwan and Ukraine. There are also a number of differences, but I think a lot of the discourse then, the concern is annexation of Ukraine by Russia would be similar to what would happen in the event of a Chinese invasion. And so in a sense, I think there is this concern. Uh, there's observations as to the effects of international sanctions, because, for example, if China were to invade, perhaps this repertoire would also be deployed against China. Uh, similarly, with regards to the ability of Ukraine to stand up to Russia, I think there's a lot of uh, watching and waiting in the hopes that if Ukraine can triumph in its struggle against Russia, this is a sign that smaller, weaker countries can actually stand up to larger aggressors. I think the parallels between Russia and China at this point are, are quite evident regarding claims on other territories, claims of historical ties, that another territory does not meet the qualifications for nationhood, and so that armed invasion is necessary and justified. Mm. Well, Brian, but not too long ago, and to be more precise, two days ago, that the foreign minister of Chinese government and came out to say, and if I can paraphrase it, the issue between Russia and Ukraine and comparing with China and Taiwan are completely irrelevant. So in other words, during the press conference, he was saying that Ukraine and Russia has been dealing with each other politically and culturally for decades. But, but the tension or the issue regarding Taiwan and China have no way to compare with the tensions between those two former countries. So in other words, we shouldn't mix them together. Now, from your standpoint, what is your reaction to this? Now, again, why do you think that Chinese government is trying to distance themselves away from the tension between Russia and Ukraine when we talk about Taiwan and China? 
So I think it's quite interesting because of the fact that China does not want to alienate the international community to the extent that it would if it just jumped on board with backing Russia. This would draw parallels to the Cold War. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion of the new Cold War, quote-unquote, mm. in the past few years. However, China would still lose a lot of international standing that it does not hope to. Uh, for example, with the recent Beijing Olympics, that's another sign of how China would like to have engagement. It would like to win the respect of the international community. Uh, you see these efforts of One Belt, One Road with outreach to Southeast Asian countries as well. And so I think then throwing your cards in with Russia, that might not be the right move there. Mm. But I think that it is inconvenient that there are these obvious parallels between Ukraine and Taiwan. The way that Russia justifies its claims over Ukraine are quite similar to how it justifies its claims over Taiwan, whether in terms of shared language, cultural heritage, the presence of, of uh, for example, a small minority there, etc. And so that parallel, it does come up. It is a little inconvenient, too, that Russia's discourse for justifying why it's taking action against Ukraine, that, for example, recognizes the independence of Donetsk and Luhansk as republics, but does not recognize the Ukraine, that's a little, a little confusing for China, too, because in the sense that it cannot fully invalidate the principle of self-determination there when uh, Russia is claiming to uphold that for these republics, but not for Ukraine. Mm. And so I think it's also more complicated there. And I think China wants to avoid this complication. So it wants to distance Ukraine and Taiwan in the popular imagination. Well, but Ryan, we know that this year for China, and not only as we mentioned before, you know, quickly wrap up this Winter Olympic. And of course, that China today, in terms of understanding the tension between Ukraine and Russia, China is actually caught in the middle. And we know that Vladimir Putin, before this whole occupation, what we called invasion, took place, Vladimir Putin had sent no signal to the world. And even though he made an empty promise that he was not going to do it. Now, the question drawing back to Taiwan, China for centuries and has been dealing with, uh, you know, this part of the world. And for years, that people, especially within this international community, has predicted that either there's going to be a conflict or militarily or culturally, politically, or China is going to uh, be uh, a bit busy with any other uh, international projects such as Belt and Road Initiative. But I think the question to you right now is, why do you think that China, I mean, again, hypothetically, what would China gain if China decided to take any actions against Taiwan? And also, don't you think that in the midst of the whole uh, uh, pandemic or in the midst of the whole international globalization, if China decides to take such action, it is going to backlash or it is going to create a, such a negative image for the country, don't you think? Absolutely. So I think the uh, rationale for justifying Taiwan is not actually, there's not a great rationale for that. Uh, just it would be an illogical move because, for example, you'd be sacrificing tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of human lives. Uh, some mm. of the estimates go up to 500,000. This would be the largest naval invasion since D Day, which did not actually include, involve that many people, not more than 200,000 per se. Uh, and so then you lose that amount of people. That's going to create a political impact. Uh, for example, Russia, their losses are already creating backlash within Russia, but it's not anywhere near that amount mm. that China would hypothetically lose. The Taiwanese economy itself is large enough that effects on it would cause ripples throughout the world. Uh, their economy is larger than Greece, for example. We saw the financial impact from the Greek economic crisis. Uh, then China's own economy is deeply interlinked with Taiwan in terms of semiconductor manufacturing, uh, but other trade ties as well. And the economy is already slowing before COVID. And so then that effect on China's economy might not necessarily work out as well. And so then you are ris risking extreme crisis if you do that. So you are only doing this at your own peril. 
But what might drive China then, in this sense, is abstract nationalism or just desire for imperial conquest, being willing mm. to take that risk to justify future expansion, wanting Taiwan for its strategic value, the uh, island belts, for example, around Taiwan, just expanding outward from Taiwan to other parts of the Asia Pacific. And that might make a suitable staging ground. And so this is what might China wants to have by taking over Taiwan. But in the near term, it does not seem a very rational move to do so. That being said, if China does act rationally, that could still happen. Mm. And, you know, um, it's so interesting that when you mentioned technological aspect, and we're going to get to that in a second in terms of the competition in technology. But, Ryan, I want to ask you, since you are based in Taiwan, and let's go back to the people in Taiwan. Just in a general sense, let, let me let me simplify the question. Are people fearful about mainland China today? And if so, what will be the reason? Because remember that Chinese leader Xi Jinping uh, it's has been known for this uh, um, poker face. You know, has been known that for strategic uh, strategic planning behind the doors. So it is rather difficult to know what this leader is going to implement in terms of dealing with international uh, communities or dealing with um, allies or uh, with friends. But meanwhile, I want to know that based on your observation, what is the reaction from uh, from um, Taiwan to the leader in mainland China? And what do people say regarding this leader? And especially this year, it's so critical that coming up to 10 year anniversary for Belt and Road Initiative. So uh, this is a part of what I was rushing towards earlier, but I think this is why there's good reason to be cautious of Xi Jinping. In particular, he is centralizing power in his hands. For example, he wants to have perhaps lifetime rule. He has already abolished the term limits that a Chinese president can serve. And so if you do want to expand your power further, sometimes manufacturing crisis is the easiest way to do that. And one way to do that would be to attack Taiwan. And then there's the further danger of the fact that when you have decision-making centralized in one person's hands, and perhaps this is what we also see with Russia, that person may not be behaving irrationally. Mm. They may be behaving irrationally. The party is obviously not a democracy, but it is still more than one person. And so more than one person making decision-making, you have wisdom of the crowd. People can weigh into each other account and balance things out. That's not happening with perhaps one person who might not be acting rationally or is pursuing their own ends that are not those of his nation. And so in that sense, then, people in Taiwan, I think, are afraid. They are cautious of Xi Jinping. They've seen the downturn that's happened in democratic freedoms as occurred under his rule, the mass detention of Uyghurs, for example. Uh, the, uh, just even with the Beijing Olympics, there are several incidents that really caused, called to question China's claims that it is democratic. And so there's that. Uh, but I don't think people are freaking out just yet in the sense that it's not perceived as an immediate short-term threat because it is not. For one, troops massing on the shores of China would be detected ahead of time through satellite imagery. The air incursions, for example, that China launched against Taiwan have increased to such frequency that they sometimes occur on a near daily uh, basis now. This did not actually provoke a lot of panic in Taiwan because they still occur far from Taiwan. Everyday life goes on, mm. etc. It's still a threat that is in the back of people's heads. Taiwan has dealt with Chinese threats for decades, and so that is part of why people are quite used to it. Mm. You know, Brian, the former Secretary of the State, Mike Pompeo, paid a visit to Taiwan recently, and of course, which caused a huge alarm to mainland China. Some people say the purpose for Pompeo to make the visit because he was preparing for this 2024 presidential run and, and um, sending this message to China and that can really boost his credibility in terms of the foreign policy side. But on the other hand, 
Also, people claim that Pompeo's visit to reassurance that this partnership or this strategic alliance between U.S. and Taiwan. Now, from your perspective, how significant was Pompeo's visit to the U.S. and what was the general reaction from the Taiwanese government to receive such a credible and a reliable partner, which for centuries that this person has been claiming that Taiwan should be partner or close allies with U.S. because U.S. is going to provide resources to Taiwan technologically, politically, or maybe in the future the um, in other areas, Brian? So it's interesting because Pompeo's visit was as a private citizen. He was not representing the U.S. government. And so in this sense, his uh, move in visiting Taiwan was probably aimed at gearing up for a future presidential run. Mm. This indicates the amount of support for Taiwan among a certain wing of particularly Republicans does not reflect U.S. government policy. And so more significant as a former assurance was the defense delegation of former defense officials that the Biden administration dispatched to Taiwan, both Democrat and Republican. It was bipartisan in nature, but it came from the administration. And so this occurred in response to the Ukraine crisis. It was a way to reassure of ties after the Ukraine crisis. But I think what is particularly interesting to note about the Pompeo visit is that the Thai administration really rolled out the red carpet. Taipei 101, the tallest cost skyscraper in Taiwan, lit up mm. with a message of welcome for Pompeo. And so this was to show the, that Taiwan is banking on this wing of the Republican Party in some sense, I think. Just hedging bets in case that, for example, that wing of the Republican Party or the right wing or Pompeo and his allies come to power. But also as a way to pressure the Biden administration, it is quite significant that Pompeo did receive pay from this administration for the visit. Also, his messaging was very on point with what the administration is arguing, that it is not pushing for independence, that Taiwan is already independent by the name of the ROC. Mm. And that seems like a bit more than coincidence. And so I think this was also intended as a way to pressure Biden. Hmm. Brian, let's talk about the younger generations. Again, you are the um, part of the uh, new online magazine. It's called a new balloon. Now, I want to ask you, you know, when we look at the millennials today, just across the world, younger generations are very bold. You know, if I can use that word in terms of engaging uh, the political shifts, cultural movements, you know, uh, especially that these days, specifically in the region of Asia. So I want to ask you, is in Taiwan, how do the younger generations participate in such a political or cultural movement? And again, you mentioned this whole online magazine was inspired under the Sunflower Movement. So if you can quickly help us to recap, what was the Sunflower Movement about and why uh, uh, to create this online platform called a new balloon, which is I which I visited many times and the insights and also the content was very creative and insightful. Can you share with us a little bit? Thank you. Uh, so yeah, New Bloom was started in 2014 during the Sun Conference that involved the youth-led occupation of the Taiwanese legislature by student activists. That was in protest of a trade deal that was to be signed with China, the CSSTA, which have also allowed for investment in Taiwan's service sector industry. It would fear that this would lead to a de deterioration of democratic freedoms in Taiwan when there are going to be impacts from investment on, in the media, for example, by pro-China businessmen and that sort of thing. Um, and so that would involve the occupation of the legislature for months uh, that mobilized at its peak 500,000 into the streets of Taipei, which is like 2.5% mm. of the Taiwanese population. Uh, so I was a participant in that movement. And Nuclear Magazine, which I founded along with my other cohort, uh, we were also participants in the uh, occupation itself in the action around it or organizing a solidarity from abroad. 
And so it's been about eight years since then, uh, eight years actually not too long from now, just in, mm. in a little over a week. And <laughs> so uh, we are still doing this after all this time because we felt there was a need to really connect Taiwan in the international world. And so I think particularly in the years after the Sunfire Movement, there's been a, a sea change in Taiwanese politics. It is currently the DPP, the uh, more progressive but also more independence-leaning party that is currently in power in the KMT, which was in power during the Sunfire Movement, but is the more pro-China and more conservative party. And so that has been a change. You have a generation of young people that have entered politics, now run as politicians that are in elected office. People that once occupied the legislature in protest of the trade deal now sit in the legislature as elected officials. And so even now when I go out, even just today when I was getting breakfast, I would see a billboard of my friend who is now a city councilor in the area, for example. Wow. Or I might be riding a city bus and it's the billboard on the bus mm. is for my friend. So it's a bit uncanny in some sense, but there has been this real entrance of young people into politics in this way in the past effectively decade. But why do you think that younger generations today are very active in joining this political movement? I mean, Ryan, again, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that younger generations are not ready for such bold and risky uh, adventure. But I do want to say that, you know, we always say dealing with a, a political aspects or becoming a politician that does not just need the the boldness and the brevity you know that really involve a lot more st strategic planning and the far-sightedness you know in terms of the vision so i want to know is why do the younger generations in taiwan to activate and to participate such political movement and meanwhile uh, because this is such a, a how can i say it's a growing region of the world right so in other words um how do we know that the younger generation's voice can be heard or will be more effective in the long run so i think it's the interesting thing too about the uh, sunfire movement and the sunfire generation that after watching these elected politicians in office fail to accomplish things so fail to really uh, take into account the voices of the common people in their policy, young people decided to take matters into their own hands by occupying the legislature. One of the protest slogans for the time was, save your own country. And so I think that is what happened after the young people running for office, feeling that, well, we had done this movement, we had occupied the legislature, we had organized this massive uh, thing that really shook Taiwanese society. Well, the next step is to make that, take that energy from this movement and translate it into something more firmer and more sustained. And that translate into the wave of younger people running for office. And so I think it is actually true that younger people are not in the positions where they actually hold mm. power now. Tsai for example, still was elected, uh, but you know, she presented herself as a candidate with the support of young people and really depicted herself as such. But it is still the older politicians that are holding leadership positions in the DPP. But I think then there is dialogue between younger and older politicians in electoral politics and beyond regarding this. And I think also just this older generation, a lot of them themselves, uh, some of these elected politicians that are more let's say progressive or what have you, did themselves participate in social movements when they were young. There is this pattern of social movement activists running for offices in Taiwan. And I think they also know in some sense they need to train successors, carry on mm. uh, this kind of history of democratic activism. And so I think that there is a, a kind of balance there. And so I think this is part of what is beyond this, uh, uh, behind this, this entrance of young people into politics. And what about, Brian, the younger generations, their attitude towards the current leader, Tsai Ing-wen? And, you know, uh, from the social media perspective, that, you know, for years that as I used to um, uh, live in Taiwan and travel extensively throughout Asia, I would say among the international communities, the people are very much familiar with the leader um, of Taiwan. And, you know, uh, people have been praising and talking about how confident she appears and also um, how much effort that she's devoted herself into build this alliance, you know, cross the parties. But again, we're looking at 2022. And again, just at the conversation we started at the beginning, 
The tension between Taiwan and mainland China is not going anywhere soon. But meanwhile, we have not heard or we have not at least recently read anything regarding from Taiwan's government that her attitude and her leadership towards this whole uh, uh, tension uh, between mainland China and Taiwan and, and also the uh, the tension uh, between Ukraine and Russia. Uh, 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 Russia. So I want to know, like, how do people in Taiwan, especially the millennials, see the leadership or view the leadership under Taiwan? So I think uh, young people in particular are quite satisfied. I mean, they are, that, I think, uh, uh, attract the attention and support of young people is why she embraced a progressive social policy. Because she herself is a little technocratic and bureaucratic as a politician. Uh, she's not really a politician that really riles up the crowd. But she is quite strong on policy. And I think that has also played to her strengths in terms of cross-strait relations. China always frames her as provocateur in the way that her predecessor as DP President Chen Shui-bian was often perceived as being. And this led Chen Shui-bian to lose the support of the U.S., uh, or have a great deal of caution towards him. Uh, and Tsai also experiences herself in the, in the sense that the U.S. was originally quite cautious against her, feeling that she would be another DPP leader that would just become another Chen, another troublemaker in the region. And so embracing a very moderate image, saying that she is not pro-independence, but that the Taiwan is already independent by the name of the ROC. There's no need to declare independence, being pro to status quo, but also mm. being progressive on these issues. That's really worked to her benefit, I think, in that she was able to avoid losing support. And I think this is why young people support her in that sense. Uh, I think also it helps that she has a clean political image. She's seen as not corrupt, whereas the end of the Chen administration was marked by some corruption charges. And so I think that's another reason why people think that she's a, a break from the traditional politics, or at least does represent something closer to the voice of young people. And in the future, perhaps it will be young people, this current generation that is in power. But until then, Tsai does seem like an adequate or capable leader, particularly to many millennials. Brian, let's talk about technological aspects. As you mentioned before, right now in China, despite this economic growth, but meanwhile, we know it's crystal clear that the technological advancement in China has been lagging behind, and which is very concerning to the Chinese government. You know, for centuries, that China has been in this competitive mood in terms of developing, you know, uh, chips or semiconductor, you know, whatsoever, or artificial intelligence, however you call it. But again, China still has a long way to go in terms of competing, actually get on the same level with other countries, especially with a uh, with a West Hemisphere. Now, from your perspective, how would you evaluate this whole technological growth of mainland China? And second, what about the aspect in Taiwan? Do you think that Taiwan right now has more advantages in this area uh, uh, in terms of competing with mainland China? I think it's a it's a it's a factor there where particularly in a lot of Western media discourse, there's a playing up of China as this kind of technological superpowers as mm. overpass the US. I don't think that's the case because particularly if you look at the differences between a tier one and a tier three city, the differences are quite massive. And in that sense, the rollout of technology in China is quite uneven. Uh, China does have a lot of capital, it has a lot of people, it has a lot of talent there. And so this makes it very difficult for Taiwan, which is by nature many, many times smaller to mm. compete. Uh, Taiwan does have some advantages because de development started earlier uh, and so forth. So development was in the beginning, it did outpace China. But in that sense, uh, there are still areas in which China is still dependent on Taiwan, particularly in the field of semiconductor manufacturing. Although the Taiwanese government denies this, some reports even state that the missiles pointed at Taiwan from China even contain Taiwanese semiconductors. Mm. And so that's quite interesting. China has made efforts to win over Taiwanese young people to China to work there, uh, to form companies and, and get involved in startups and so forth. To some extent, it has been successful because pay in Taiwan is much lower compared to China. China is a larger market at the end of the day. 
However, I think that there is this concern among young people regarding the future of Taiwan, and that does pertain even to the people that work in China. There are plenty of people that work there but preserve their own views regarding uh, Taiwan or China. And I think in that sense, then, the uh, tensions between the U.S. and China, sometimes it, one frame of looking at it is a technological war, mm. not just a trade war, etc., or, or just the, the fear of a rising power by a dominant power, that it is the struggle between these two superpowers for the key technologies that will dominate the next century. And so Taiwan is caught between the two insofar as it provides, for example, semiconductors to both the U.S. and China. It is at the nexus of this technology in that sense. And so I think that's one way of looking at this. Brian, in terms of political alliance, how much can Taiwanese government trust the U.S.? Because from one side, again, I talk to the experts within international communities. Some say that Taiwan should not solely rely on the U.S. And given this condition or the fact that right now under the current administration, domestic policy, it's a chaos. And let alone this foreign policy. And on the other hand, people say U.S. is still very much interested in defending or, quote, protecting this part of the world. So from your perspective, again, you are a journalist and you are based in Taiwan. So the question, very simple, how much should Taiwanese government trust the U.S. in terms of defending itself, building military alliance, and also uh, uh, to build this sovereignty? What do you think? I think for better or worse, the tendency will be towards self-reliance. Taiwan is still very dependent on the U.S. militarily. Uh, strongly as the economy, also the parts for the Taiwanese military equipment is often still from the U.S., uh, but I, so that is not going to change in the short term or immediate term. However, I think the broader tendency in the world, even if the Trump administration was very uh, supportive of Taiwan, it was quite unstable regarding many decisions, mm. particularly back and forth in messaging. Before Trump actually took office in a role, that actually took place before he took office, before the Trump phone call, there was a lot of anxiety after Trump's victory. Uh, that this would actually re reflect a downturn in uh, U.S. Taiwan relations because Trump was seen as a wild card that did not work out, that went the other way instead as tensions rose with China and Taiwan inadvertently benefited from that. However, that, there's still that fear. And I think that there's not an, an illusion about the Trump administration. And that continues under Biden. Uh, there's a long-standing perception in Taiwan that Republicans are more supportive of Taiwan. The Democrats, for example, under Obama had really thrown Taiwan on the bus. Taiwan herself, in her 2012 presidential run, this was sabotaged by a call to the Financial Times from the White House stating that the U.S. did not have faith in Taiwan to stand up to China. Mm. And so Tsai herself has experienced what happens when the U.S. does turn on her. Uh, but at the end of the day, the relation with the U.S. is a fundamental bedrock of regional stability, and this is also not going to change immediately. So I think the time situation is accommodating for that. I think particularly actions such as the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan that created domestic shocks in the sense right. that there's a fear that the U.S. might abandon its allies in, the, in right. a time of need. And Ukraine has been a similar uh, circumstance in that the U.S. is not directly involved, but has instead sought to, to, to support Ukraine indirectly in ways that do not provoke Russia into a direct conflict. And so I think there's a sense then for the general public that this could occur potentially with a China-Taiwan conflict. And for policymakers, I think then there's also a greater concern in that they were already aware of these nuances that took place in the background. Brian, I know you're fairly busy. I got two more questions before letting you go. Let's talk about the issue regarding going back to younger generations. Again, you started this um, internet online magazine. It's called A New Bloom. And can you help us to understand what messages are you trying to send out to the younger generation, especially the readers across uh, uh, the continent or even across the world? And that's number one. And number two, how important it is for everyone, not just in Taiwan, but look beyond Taiwan, to understand such political and social movement happening in this part of the world today. 
Uh, so I think particularly for New Gloom, the attempt was to connect Taiwanese voices within Trash World because we felt a lot with the news coverage of the Sun Department, or that there was not any news coverage, the voice of Taiwanese are themselves not heard in this tension between mm. the US and China. Taiwan is more often spoken of rather than hearing the voice of Taiwanese themselves. And even with the Ukraine conflict, one observes similarly. Ukraine is talked about in terms of U.S. interests in Russian interests, etc., but sometimes not Ukrainians themselves. Mm. And so we want to have a platform to really connect them with international world to allow Taiwanese voices to be heard. And that's what the point of founding this and, and eventually shifting to majority English content was about. Uh, but then I think in terms of young people across the world, young people are facing adverse conditions. We see war, uh, military dictatorships, particularly in uh, Asia, we've seen the rise of the Milk Tea Alliance or, or uh, movements in Thailand, mm. Myanmar, uh, the Philippines, and beyond. And I just think globally, we've saw the rise of, of uh, movements of young people struggling as economic inequality, that young people do not have the conditions that their parents had and so really struggle to make it and have the, the same standard of living that their parents had, or that think conditions just uh, deteriorate. And this is reflected even in U.S. domestic politics. And so we were really hoping to connect with Taiwan and those places, to connect young people across the world or people with like-minded values through this publication. And so that's what we're aiming for. And so seven, eight years later, close to eight years later, that's what we're still trying to do and trying mm. to conduct dialogues online uh, through physically to our space that we run in Taipei and other endeavors to really build this space for discussion and thought and reflection on the share condition. Because I do think that we're all caught up together in terms of the world and society and so forth. Mm. Brian, the last question I want to end our conversation on climate change. And you know, for mainland China, and especially for the entire world, that climate change or renewable energy, this is something that the world is watching today. And again, we always say cannot be done by one country and let alone being uh, uh, can be solved by individual. Now, in terms of such heavy topic or such a critical issue, how do you think that China, I mean, Taiwan plays such a role in terms of dealing with climate change or even participation with other countries in the world to tackle this critical critical issue? So I think it's uh, another part in which how global communities are all connected, because if one country does not follow these global standards, then, well, the rest of the world is still doomed due to climate change. And so this includes Taiwan. Taiwan historically has been a polluter. Uh, the industrial buildup of Taiwan under the uh, Chiang administrations, the two dictatorships, were through massive pollution of the environment. Mm. Taiwan is still reckoning with this decades later. And so after that, the uh, democracy movement was very much tied up with the environmental movement because there was a sense of this environmental destruction that had been wreaked on Taiwan's natural habitats, that the KMT had just really exploited Taiwan's natural resources and sometimes promoted them to try to get back to China because that was their main endeavor rather than staying here. And so I think this is transited into uh, the sense of the democracy and environmental protection are deeply linked. But Taiwan is left out of international uh, climate change bodies, left out of most international bodies. Mm. And so compliance by Taiwan in these standards has sometimes been voluntary. The notion to show to the world that by being a good citizen, Taiwan also deserves a seat at the table. Uh, but then that raises the question of how to enforce this. There are companies that do find ways to skirt these exactly. rules or to exploit these older ties. Right. And so then there's that. But then I think in terms of the ability to influence China, I think then that's another question entirely because China perhaps will have no interest in complying about this. And so it's another way in which I think the global community in terms of the fight against climate change, it really does have to be international. Mm. Well, Brian Huey, it's one of the founding editors of New Bloom, and he's a freelance journalist as well as a translator. Again, ladies and gentlemen, New Bloom, it's an online magazine covering activism and youth politics in Taiwan and Asia Pacific. And it was founded in Taiwan in 2014 in the wake of the Sunflower Movement. Brian, 
Thank you so much for taking your time to be on our show. Again, we really appreciate that you're reporting all the way from Taiwan and help us to understand not only the logistic part regarding mainland China and Taiwan, but also how the Taiwanese younger generations today are using their power and their effort try to change not only domestically, but international policies. Thank you, Brian. It's been a pleasure of talking to you. Pleasure. Thanks so much.